For our text this morning, we're, uh, we're going to be in Joshua uh, chapter, chapter 4, so I hope you have your Bibles and, and you would go ahead and, and turn there as I seek to exposit the Word of God this morning. As you, um, as you turn there, consider this, that for each of us, there are moments in life that we will never forget. There are milestones that, that in the moment, in the moment, they seem to define our lives and, and to define our culture. Some still today remember where they were when they heard that JFK was shot. Some remember the, the moon landing. Some remember watching the Vietnam War come to close. Some remember the miracle on ice in 1980. Some remember the L.A. riots of 1992. Some remember the famous O.J. Simpson Bronco chase in 1994. Some remember the Olympic Park bombing in 1996. I know I'm taking many of you back, including myself. But for, for me, one event I will always remember, one event I will always remember is the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. I remember the way that I felt watching the events unfold at school. I, I remember the way that our, that our country was, was united afterwards. I remember, at least in that moment, being so very proud of President George W. Bush as we looked his leadership. I remember being fearful to fly on an airplane shortly after for quite a few years. You could say that that event impacted me. And you could say that it impacted our nation as well. In fact, the nation still to this day has a mantra when September 11th comes around each year. What is it? Never forget. Now, they've put a memorial down in the financial district where the World Trade Centers used to stand so, so that people would always remember what happened. However, if we're honest, our country has more than forgotten about 9-11. See, we, we have moved on as a nation. See, the same convictions and unity that existed in the days following the attacks, they are long gone. As someone who lived through it, I'm telling you, they're long gone, young people. You see, while we can recall the events with our minds, the impact that it had on our hearts and lives is by and large over as a society. Over. Why? Well, because we are a forgetful people. We are a people that become consumed with the next thing. We are blinded by new opportunities and new trials and new temptations. However, there are some things that the Word of God, hear me, demands that we never forget. There are some things that we must fight to remember, to trust, and to cling to every day of our lives. And not just for intellect's sake, but to impact our hearts and to impact our lives. My main point this morning is this. As Christians, we must take to heart that we serve a mighty God 
who is faithful and able to fulfill all of his promises. I'm going to say that again. As Christians, we must take to heart. That's what I want you to think about this morning. That's what I really want you to think about this morning. As Christians, we must take to heart that we serve a mighty God who is faithful and able to fulfill all of his promises. With that, let's turn to Joshua 4 and, and read it this morning. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the Ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before, before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on a dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people uh, came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at uh, Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. On those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Point one this morning. Point one. 
we remember to be changed. We remember to be changed. We remember to be changed. You might recall from last week that the, that the Lord was officially bringing the Israelites into the promised land. In fact, you might recall that he did so in stunning fashion. He did so in a way that all of creation and all of the people of Israel knew that it was God alone who brought his people into the promised land. Yahweh supernaturally stopped the storming Jordan River so that his covenant people Israel could cross safely into the promised land. And not only that, but he stopped the river to the, to the degree that the Israelites actually crossed the river on dry ground. Joshua 3.17 told us that the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stirred, uh, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. We must not forget that, that God was working in such a way that only He would get the glory. He was working in such a way that the Israelites would place no confidence in their own efforts as they crossed the river and entered into the land. Rather, they were to place their hope in the person and work of Yahweh alone. In fact, their life, once they entered the promised land, was to be characterized not by leaning on their own might, not by leaning on their own wisdom or their innovation, but on a continuous dependence, acknowledgement, love, worship, and fear of God. In other words, God was not relocating them to the land and telling them, well, Israelites, you've got it from here. No, God promised that he would be with them. However, God was calling his covenant people to follow him and to obey him. God wasn't calling the Israelites to establish their own culture. He wasn't calling them to create a nation from scratch with its own unique mores that develop organically from a... And 22.16 and history, God has revealed why they can and why they should follow him by revealing his power, his faithfulness, and most importantly, his holiness to the Israelites. And this is exactly what we see in Joshua 3 from last week. In Joshua 3, the Lord supernaturally stops the Jordan River from flowing by commanding the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the river and to stand still. At that point, 
The river stopped flowing and gathered in one. We see that the whole nation was able to cross the Jordan on completely dry land. Every last citizen of the nation of Israel was able to experience God's sovereign power in that moment. There was no other explanation as to what they experienced except that the Lord Almighty, He reigns and He is in their presence. So in response to this miracle, we see in verses 2 through 5 that Yahweh commanded Joshua to get 12 men from Israel, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and order them each to grab a stone around the area that the priests stood holding the Ark of the Covenant and to bring them across the river into the Promised Land and into the area that they would camp with their tribe. Of course, Joshua obeys and commands the men to carry the stones on their shoulders, so assumably these were fairly large rocks. They weren't like little, little hand-sized rocks. Then we see in verse 6 that Yahweh begins to give some insight as to why he would command the Israelites to gather these stones. God's will for these 12 stones was that they would be a sign among God's people. Then we see that, that the stones were meant to serve a multi-generational purpose. Do you see that? Actually, it's actually mentioned a few times in this, in this passage. Twice in this passage, we see that one of the primary purposes of these stones was for the benefit of the next generation understanding what the Lord did. See, our, our sovereign Lord, he certainly knows children well, doesn't he? He does. He knows that they ask a lot of questions. And if you hang around children, you'll find that they ask, Dad, what, what, what is that? Dad, how does this work? Mom, why do we do that? Mom, wh why is this bad for us? You see, children are observant. Children are oh so eager to learn. You see, it's not that children are particularly difficult to disciple. It's just that they have so many questions that it can get exhausting. The Lord, speaking through Joshua, anticipates a day when the children of those who came into the promised land wouldn't just ask about the significance of the stones. You see that. You see that in your Bibles. But notice what the children would ask. What do those stones mean to you? I want you to underline that. What do those stones mean to you? Now, the children wouldn't be asking their parents, how do you interpret the meaning of the stones? Instead, the children would come to their fathers, mothers, grandchildren, and mentors and, and ask, what are the significance of the stones to you? Do, do you friends, do, do you see the difference in those two questions? One is a question about facts or information. The other is a question of value. These children would be seeking to understand, are these stones really important to you? If so, why are they important to you? See, kids don't just ask a lot of questions. They always seem to ask the right questions. My daughter, Brevity, 
who's just now joined us in the service for a few weeks. She just turned six. However, over the past few years, she always asks the most insightful theological questions at tuck-in time. Assuming I could communicate theological truths in a logical manner, she always seems to follow and ask the best questions. Her questions usually lead down the road to the same questions that all of us have about God in the Bible that will only possibly be answered one day in eternity future, if at all. However, kids aren't slouches. They're eager to know about the world. They're always watching us. Even when we aren't intentionally leading them, they're always following our lead. I've shared this story with you guys before in a sermon, but, but, but I think it bears repeating as an example. During this time of the year, we'll often have our, our football games on TV in the background as we're cooking or just around the house. And most of the time, it will feature teams that aren't our teams. They're not our family teams. They're not the teams that we typically root for. And almost every time a game is on, my kids will ask me, Dad, who are we cheering for? Who are we cheering for, Dad? Now, I've never forced my children to cheer for any team in their life, which is partially true. They naturally just want to know what means a lot to dad. And most of the time, they follow my lead. And as I think about these stones and the significance of the question, I can't help but think about discipling our children. It might be easy to think that discipling our children is all about being able to regurgitate the right factual theological information to our children. See, it can be tempting to think that discipling our children is, is all about the right processes, the right systems, the right educational choices, the right friend groups, the right forms of discipline, and even the right church. Now, while all of these things are extremely important, most of these things don't speak the loudest to our children from a discipleship standpoint. I'll say that again. While all of these things are extremely important, most of these things do not speak the loudest to our children from a discipleship standpoint. What speaks the loudest to our children is being able to answer as parents and grandparents and children and adults and elders and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is this. How much does Jesus truly mean to you? And most of the time, this isn't answered through direct verbal communication. And it isn't answered in a single conversation. It isn't answered in a single day. It is observed over time. It is answered in the midst of trials. It is answered in the way that we spend our time and in the way that we spend our money. It is answered in the way that we handle conflict. It is answered in the way that we respond when we wrong others, especially our children. It is answered in what brings us joy and fulfillment and happiness. It is answered in how we love others and our attitude about the church whom our Lord and Savior gave his life to purchase. In other words, parents are not. 
the fruit of our lives, hear me, speaks volumes about what we really believe. Not what we say we believe. About what we really believe. Isn't this exactly what Jesus said in the Gospels, friends? In Matthew 7, 17, Jesus says that most healthy trees bear good fruit. No, that's not what he said. Jesus said every healthy tree bears good fruit. Meaning, every true follower of Jesus Christ is changed by Jesus Christ. In other words, you can tell that they actually love Jesus. They don't just say they love Jesus. They love Jesus. You can, can tell, you can tell not that they don't sin, but they are convicted by their sin. They aren't perfect. There's no perfect Christian. They're perfect, but there is fruit in their life. The Christians aren't just basically nice people. They aren't just conservative people. They are people who love and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are people who have been changed by Jesus. They aren't just people who know and affirm good theology. They are people who have been changed by the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, God didn't simply perform a magic trick for the Israelites in order to impress them. God isn't here just showing off. He revealed himself to them, church, so that they would trust him. And I mean, really trust him. The way that you trust sitting in that chair right now, you sit in it. It demonstrates your trust. That's why God was working among his people. He, would, he revealed himself to them so that they would worship him. He revealed himself to them so that they would, as the text will say later, will fear him. As they consider the 12 stone memorial, they weren't just reminded that they crossed over into the land of promise. According to, to verse 7, they should have been reminded that the waters were cut off before the Ark, the Covenant of the Lord. In other words, they would have been reminded of the Lord's work. They would have been reminded of the Lord's power. This is what the Lord wanted to instill into the hearts of the Israelites over and over and over again in the Old Testament. He would constantly remind the people that it was He who would work for their good, he simply called the Israelites to follow him by faith. So yes, they were to bear fruit. Yes, they were to the love of the Lord. But their heart and their focus and their mind was not meant to be on their work. And their heart and their mind was not meant to be on their fruit. Their heart and their mind was meant to be on the sufficiency of the Lord God. So, he tells the Israelites that the stones were to be a memorial to them forever. Now forever... It seems like a long time, doesn't it? Why would Israel need this memorial after God brings them into the promised land? Because the Israelites would always need to be reminded where their hope and their strength and their confidence is found. 
The Lord knew that when he brought them into the promised land, their hearts would often go astray and would be prone to idolatry. In fact, this, this is what the Lord warns them of in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12. You can write it down and you can look at it with me. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, he says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care. Then take care. Be careful. Be intentional. Lest you, what? Forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. See, the Lord was bringing them into a land that was every bit as good as the Lord God promised. It was a land that was full of milk and honey. It was full of cities and houses and vineyards and, and, and wildlife. Keep in mind that these promises were made to a people whose past generations were enslaved in Egypt and then wandered through the desert. If anyone would have been excited about receiving a homeland that was full to the brim of blessings, it would have been the Israelites in this moment. Yet, there was a temptation that came along with such a blessing. It was a temptation. The temptation as they entered the land would be that the Israelites would become obsessed with a gift and not the giver of the gift. They would look at all their blessings and become self-sufficient rather than dependent on the Lord. Again, if they were to remain in the promised land, multiply and prosper, it would require them, according to the word of God, to always trust the Lord. Always. Because their hearts, like ours, were prone to wander, the Lord graciously gave them a memorial to remind them of their constant need for him. Therefore, we see the people of Israel obey Joshua's commandments in verses 8 through 10. The 12 men got their 12 stones and placed them presumably in a stack near the Jordan River. The priests stayed holding the Ark of the Covenant until all of God's chosen people passed through. And this event fulfilled what Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 31.3 when he told Israel that it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy the nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. We also see commands from Moses fulfilled in verses 11 through 13, as the Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh tribes passed through. You might remember from Joshua 1 that these two and a half tribes desired not to initially cross over the Jordan because they wanted to possess the land in Gilead because it was better for what? Raising their livestock. However, the Lord commanded them through Moses to cross over and help their fellow Israelites take possession of the land that God promised. If they obeyed, Yahweh promised to give them the land in Gilead as a possession. Well, so the two and a half tribes agreed to go. So we see in Joshua 4, 11 through 13 that it, that it points to them honoring their commitment to take possession of all the land, not just for themselves, but for all of the Israelites. Then, if you're looking at your Bible, we see in verse 14, it said that, that, that it was in that moment where Israel saw Joshua the same as they saw Moses. 
And, and we've got to understand, it, it wasn't that Joshua or even Moses was that great. They weren't that great. You see, in the, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that Moses was a fearful, introverted man who couldn't speak well. The only impressive thing about Moses was that the Lord led him and was on his side. It was the Lord working through Moses that was amazing, not Moses himself. And the same thing could be said about Joshua. We, we, we certainly see that, that Joshua was a godly man, but there is nothing indicating that he was a particularly powerful or gifted man. See, people were in awe of him because the Lord was with him and working through him, just like he did with Moses. As they looked at Joshua, they knew that the Lord would defend them, lead them, and never leave them, just like he did with Moses. This is what was impressive about Joshua. And after everyone passed through the, the Jordan on, on dry ground, verses 15 through 18 tell us that the priest carried the Ark of the Covenant out of the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan. And as soon as their feet stepped foot into the promised land, the waters overflowed their banks just like before. You see, this whole event, it wasn't a coincidence. There wasn't someone upstream who created this giant dam just in the nick of time for, for the Israelites to pass over on dry ground. Hear me, friends. It was a miracle from the hand of Yahweh. And so as the chapter concludes in verses 19 through 24, we see that the author draws our attention back to the stones and seems to repeat what we've already read in some of the previous verses. The author reiterates that the stones were set up near their camp. Then he reiterates the call to tell future generations about the meaning of the stones. However, in verse 23, there are some very important truths for us to consider. Which brings us to point number two. We remember in order to fear. We remember in order to fear. Joshua was one of the few people who was delivered out of slavery and now entered into the promised land. He had a first-hand look at how the Lord's sovereign hand brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He saw the plagues. He saw the Passover. And as, as he experienced the Lord stopping the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over into the Promised Land, he was reminded of a time decades before when the Lord parted the Red Sea so that him, along with all of the other Israelites, could be delivered from slavery. Of course, Joshua is thinking back to the event that we see in, in Exodus chapter 14. And if you're, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Pharaoh had already let the Israelites go from their enslavement in Egypt because of the Lord's judgment upon the Egyptians. However, after the Israelites depart Egypt, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart for the purpose of what? His own glory. So Pharaoh and his army changed their mind and began to chase after the Israelites in order to kill them or enslave them again. The problem for the Israelites is that the Lord led the Israelites to camp right beside the Red Sea. So what happened is they were, they were boxed in all together with, with, with nowhere to flee as they saw Pharaoh with his army of, of over 600.
hundred chariots approaching them. Yet, as I mentioned before, God was working in such a way that only he would get the glory. Just when all hope seemed lost, the Lord had Moses lift his staff toward the sea, and the sea was divided so that the nation of Israel could pass through the Red Sea on dry ground over to the other side. Well, we know that the whole nation passed over to the other side of the sea, and as the Egyptians tried to pursue them, the waters of the Red Sea came crashing down on top of them and killed every last member of the house of Pharaoh who tried to pursue the Israelites into the Red Sea. God was revealing something very important here to the Israelites. He was letting them know that only God could deliver them from slavery. Only God could truly deliver them from slavery. In and of themselves, they had every reason to fear. They were powerless and helpless to protect themselves and to deliver themselves from the mighty nation of Egypt. Only Yahweh had the power to deliver them from their bondage. However, God didn't just promise to deliver the Israelites from slavery. He had promises that he made to Israel and their forefathers to bless them and to give them a land. He would bring them into a land and defeat their enemies. They would dwell there securely. God would be their God and he would be their people. And as the Lord parted the Jordan River here in Joshua, God was revealing to the Israelites that only God could deliver them into the promised land. See the picture here. God alone delivered them out of slavery, and God alone delivered them into the promised land. He delivered them out in order to deliver them in. Now, God fulfilled these promises in a very literal sense. A very literal sense. He promised to physically deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And he fully and physically delivered them from slavery. He promised to physically give Israel a literal promised land when he fully and physically delivered this real nation out of Egypt and gave them a real and physical land, Israel. However, the events of Exodus and the events of Joshua are but a shadow of even greater promises that God made to his covenant people to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. These events point to how the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would deliver his people out of spiritual bondage and deliver them safely into his kingdom. In fact, the law, the prophets, the priesthood, and the whole Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. They all point to our need for a savior. They all point to our inability to save ourselves. They all point to how if we are to be made right with God, it will have to be God's initiative and God's work 
not our own. In other words, they all point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of it. Every word. Every promise. Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has fulfilled its requirements. Amen. That is why the author of Hebrews can emphatically say in Hebrews 10.1 that the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things. In other words, the law, as beautiful and God-glorifying as it was, it pointed to something greater. Jesus. That is why Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So when we read the Old Testament, one of the primary questions we should be asking is what? What does this passage tell us about Jesus? And when we read about the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and the Israelites crossing over the Jordan into the Promised Land in light of what Christ accomplished on Calvary, I think we get a clear understanding of what these Old Testament truths pointed to. See, the scriptures tell us in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, in verse 13 it says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, for the Lord to redeem us means that he bought us out of the slave market. You might say, Brian, I, I was never enslaved. What are you talking about? I know a lot about slavery. I've read a lot, learned all about it through school. I've never been enslaved. Well, the Bible tells us in Romans 6 that apart from Christ, we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to sin. This means that if it were just up to us, we would do nothing but rebel against God. Our hearts would remain in a hardened state of apathy and displeasure with God. We would never obey Him. We would never choose to follow Him. We might be able to give some false outward facade of righteousness. How it would, however, it would never be enough to fool God who sees the heart. We would never pursue him. We would never desire fellowship with him or reconciliation with him. We would do nothing but sin. This is what it means to be a slave to sin. Not only that, but because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath for all of eternity. We deserve, this is what we deserve, this is what you deserve, friends, what I deserve. We deserve to spend eternity as God's enemies in hell forever. We genuinely deserve that. You see, our spiritual condition and our slavery to sin apart from Christ is far more alarming, severe, and terrifying than Israel's physical enslavement in Egypt was. Yet, 
As Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ alone redeemed us. He redeemed us. He left the throne of God, became a man, and as one who was not under the curse of sin, in other words, he was not a slave to sin, he obeyed God's law perfectly without exception. He stood as a man righteous before God. He walked perfectly in this life. He was perfectly righteous and, and he was perfectly good. Yet he came to take the penalty of our sin for us. Verse 13, it says it this way in Galatians. It says, he became a curse for us. He became a curse for us. In other words, because the penalty of our sins is the wrath of God, Jesus offered his perfect life on the cross on our behalf to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, church. Through Jesus' death, we were bought back from the slave market. We were set free from the penalty and the power of sin. Only God, hear me friends, only God has the power and ability to deliver us from sin. Not only that, but Galatians 3.14 tells us, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. Here we see that Christ didn't just purchase us out of the slave market. He didn't just deliver us out of slavery. Why? Because Christ did not stay dead. After he very literally died, he was placed in the tomb and rose victoriously on the third day. At that moment, Christ defeated sin and death once and for all. Therefore, Christ gave us the right to receive the blessing of Abraham, which is salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we are not just delivered from the slave market. God has granted those in Christ eternal life with Christ forever and ever. God has granted those in Christ to live for all of eternity, free from sin, struggle, enemies, and suffering forever. Friends, only God has the power and ability deliver us from our sin. And only God has the power and ability to deliver us into life eternal. So we must ask, what specific emotion, what specific emotion did the Lord want to provoke by stopping the Jordan? What did he want to provoke in the hearts of the Israelites? Well, according to Joshua 4.24, he wanted the whole earth to know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. See, after delivering the Israelites from slavery and delivering them into the promised land, he wanted the people to know that our God can do all that he pleases. He is the God who answers to no one. You see, he is the God who simply spoke the world into being. 
He sustains all of creation simply by willing it. All of the heavenly hosts bow before him and declare his holiness. He is not bound by time or bound by the laws of physics. In fact, he exists outside of time and was the one who created the laws of physics. The human mind can only comprehend what God has allowed us and created us to comprehend. But God could create infinite creations that our brains could not even conceive of. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in his wrath. He brought Egypt to their knees. He made Nebuchadnezzar eat grass. He made Balaam's donkey speak. He flooded the world because of the sin of man. He scattered man across the earth because of their pride and idolatry. He willed Ananias and Sapphira die because of their disobedience. He kept Daniel safe in the lion's den. He, he hopped into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and protected them. He brought the Israelites into bondage in Babylon and then brought them back into the land just as he promised. He promised that there would be one from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. So he sent his long-expected son, the Messiah Jesus, and accomplished all his will. He did this. And so much more, friends, this is our God, church. This is our God. He does whatever he pleases, period. When he makes a promise, he keeps the promise. He is a faithful and a mighty God. Yet, if we look at the text, we simply see that knowing that God is mighty wasn't the end goal, was it? Intellectually comprehending the might of the Lord was not the goal. God's might was meant to move their hearts in a particular direction. Which direction? God's sovereign and faithful might was meant to produce a fear among the people of God. And this one event in the Jordan wasn't meant for a one-time fear as they were about to take on Jericho. God's demonstration of his holiness and might before the whole world was a call for the Israelites to fear the Lord themselves forever. Practically, what does that look like? I've already done a sermon on the fear of the Lord. You can look it up a few weeks ago. Practically, what does this look like, though? Flush it out. It would have looked like the Israelites taking God seriously. If they feared him, they would honor him as God. If they feared him, they would have served God instead of idols. If they feared him, they would love him more than they loved the things of this world. If they feared him, they would have drawn near to know him. If they feared him, they would have obeyed him. If they feared him, they would not forget him. If they feared him, they would have trusted him and relied on him and given him the glory that he was due. They would have taken the cause to follow his statutes seriously in order to stay in the land. In other words, to fear him meant to treat him like the mighty God that he is. Not just externally but internally, from the heart. 
If you're a student of the Old Testament and you're familiar with Israel's history, you'll know that while Israel has moments of fearing the Lord, the nation is most characterized throughout time and history by the rebellion, idolatry, and apathy for the Lord. Why? Well, like Yahweh said in Deuteronomy 6, they would forget the Lord. They would become distracted by all of the many things that the world and the nations had to offer them. That is why the Lord, in His grace, gave this memorial to them. This was a gracious act. Friends, we equally need to be reminded about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Like the Israelites, our hearts are prone to go astray. Oh, we sing it, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I even raise the hand. Oh, we just don't understand how prone we are. We are so prone to wander, aren't we? We are prone to pursue all that life has to offer without regard to God. We can tend to adopt the vain philosophies of this world that constantly call us to self-sufficiency and to, and to increase our self-esteem. It is so easy for us to forget God. You see, we constantly, Community Bible Church, need to be reminded of His faithfulness. We need to constantly reflect and meditate on the cross of Christ. So I once talked with a brother who used to go to church here, and he insinuated that the gospel is the doctrine that brings us to Christ, but it's not really the doctrine that ultimately matures us. That if we really want to mature and, and, and eat the meat, we've got to move on from the gospel. Christian, we never ever, ever mature past our need for the gospel. Period. We must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We must be reminded of what Christ has done for us. You know where we're not going to be reminded of this? Most of the time, you're not going to be reminded of Christ's work on your behalf through Instagram influencers. At best, you'll typically find therapeutic pseudo-Christian garbage that most often encourages you to be your best self, to cut toxic people out of your life, and create a deep sense of victimhood in your life. However, the gospel tells us that you are the toxic person and that because of your sin, Jesus didn't cut you out of his life but became a victim for you so that you might finally be made righteous in him. You're not going to be reminded of the gospel from Hollywood. And while it might be entertaining, most of the time you're going to find 
story after story about man's great achievements and overcoming life's hard times with a, with a little hard work. Constantly tell the story that there is nothing that, that man can't do if he puts his mind to it. However, the gospel tells us that we are completely helpless before God. We can never make things right with him on our own. We are in desperate need of his son, Jesus, who died to reconcile us to him. You're not going to be reminded of the gospel on cable news. Yeah, you'll find plenty of stories that might get you all fired up about the culture and how it's going to hell in a handbasket. It might call you to boycott the next godless company or to attack the liberals or to buy a plot of food to keep in your basement in case the power grid goes down. However, the gospel tells us that we shouldn't fear the culture. We shouldn't fear awful presidents or, or bad companies. We should fear the one who can send our souls to hell. Yet, the gospel also reminds us that we need not fear. Because Christ's work on the cross turned the Father's wrath from us. See, you likely won't be reminded of the gospel in your sociology class at college or at a frat party. You likely won't be reminded of the gospel on the golf course drinking with your buddies. You likely won't be reminded of the gospel at work from your boss or your customers. Publix, Kroger, and certainly not Whole Foods reminds you of the gospel. Basically, anywhere you go, you can find every ideology this world has to offer being accepted, praised, and preached, but very, 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 very few places and things remind us of the gospel. Suffice it to say, in this culture, you won't drift towards the gospel. You won't just stumble upon the gospel. Your own flesh will even tend to fight against the truths of the gospel. Therefore, hear me friends, almost done, we must fight. We must be people who fight. We must fight to constantly be reminded of the gospel. We must be intentional to seek the Lord, not just to know about Him, but to know Him and to treasure Him and to love Him and to abide in Him. Thankfully, the Lord has given us a means to do that. First, the Lord has given us His Word. The Lord has given us His Word. When we look to the Word of God, we see the majesty and the might and the glory of God. We see his love for us and the great lengths he went to to demonstrate that love by sending Christ to die for us. We see our constant need for him and his promise to never leave us, but to sustain us, to give us hope and to give us life. In fact, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the word of God is sufficient to equip us for every work, every season, every trial, and every question that comes to mind in this life. Sufficient. Second, the Lord has given us the church. Oh, in his grace, the Lord has given us the church. We are to be a people who, according to Colossians 3.16, the word of God dwells richly among us. That, that, that it dwells. It's not just kind of something in the corner, but it dwells among us. In other words, the topics of our conversations isn't just shooting the breeze about the Braves, the stock market, stock market, or the latest nutrition trend. 
We are to be a people who interact around the word of God together. We preach the Bible. We sing the Bible. We pray the Bible. We obey the Bible. We are to be people who live out the gospel. Mark Dever calls the church the gospel made visible. We are Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 lived out. We are a diverse group of people who find family tight-knit type of unity because of Jesus Christ. We are people who should encourage one another to continue in the faith, trust Christ, and to fear the Lord. Third, finally, the Lord has given us the ordinances. He's given us the ordinances. Now, I, I, I could have put this with the church because that is technically where it belongs. I'm not divorcing the ordinance from the church. However, I wanted to highlight this means of reminding us about the gospel specifically because it is the most similar to what the Israelites had in, in Joshua chapter 4. God didn't give us a pile of stones to remind us of his might and his justice. He gave us baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is in baptism and the Lord's Supper that we most clearly see what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We see Christ's body broken for us. We see his blood spilled for us. We are reminded that Jesus is coming again for his bride. We are reminded that, that coming to Christ means dying to your old self and being made alive to walk in newness of life because of Christ's death and resurrection. These ordinances are given to us specifically to remind us of the gospel. We understand that. They aren't mindless exercises. They are meant to actually stir our affections for Christ. They are meant to bring us to repentance. They are meant to increase our faith in Christ Jesus. So Christian, in this tempting, sorrow-filled, trial-laden, fear-mongering world, we need to constantly be reminded and meditate on the majesty of might, goodness, and faithfulness of our God. We need to be reminded that he will never let us go. We must be reminded that Christ's work on the cross, it was sufficient. We must be reminded that we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We must be reminded that Christ is already one. We must be reminded that Satan will be thrown into hell. We must be reminded that we cannot lose our salvation. We must be reminded that Christ will return. We must be reminded that he, that we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. And we must be reminded that all of these truths are not because of anything that we've done, but because our mighty God, he is faithful to his promises. May we remember that church. Amen.